Welcome, glad that you're here, especially if you're new to New Hope. Really glad to have you with us. If you're part of the online virtual audience from home or maybe from the workplace right now, really glad that you're part of what we're doing. Um, if you're new to New Hope, you wouldn't know that we're in a study in the book of Genesis right now. It's called E2E, Eternity to Eternity. Eventually, might be a few years from now, we get to the book of Revelation. So we're going <laughs> all the way across. Um, somebody asked me when I'm going to retire. I told them we're taking it a decade at a time because <laughs> it, it's just, it's going to take a long time to work through this, all right? So this morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 9, and I appreciate your patience in working through this. Here's a caveat. If you've been working through the, the study book, and if you haven't picked one up yet, by the way, they're free. They're in the atrium. They're just a, a little blue, blue booklet out on the table out there. Um, this week, it, it says chapter 15 is Babel. Um, I had to tell Rich Bruce this week, we're not getting to the Tower of Babel this weekend because I could not get past the rainbow. I couldn't get past what God had used as a covenant image. And what he used in Genesis chapter 9 is just this incredibly powerful symbol for us to be able to look at and say, I see what God's doing there. So be patient with me because this is 14 part C, okay? Last week was 14 part B and we got to the altar and this week um, the rainbow and, and then next week we'll get to the Tower of Babel. I'm just going to ask you to picture something for me for a moment and, and I'm sorry if this is painful for you, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to momentarily think back in your mind to maybe one of the great traumas that you've ever personally walked through. Doesn't take long, does it? It just pops in your mind. Now take that trauma and consider that second song that you just sang and envision Moses with all the people who have left Egypt and they've been in bondage as slaves for 400 years. And they've known the greatest trauma they have ever known. And God has freed them from that trauma. He took them through the storm. And God pronounces through Moses a blessing over them. May your children and your children and their children and their children to a thousand generations know the blessing of God. Even though they've been through the trauma and the storm, God reminding them, I got you. You may go through trauma, you may go through storms, but I want you to know who's got you in the end. And that's what Genesis chapter nine is about. So before we jump into this magnificent image that God has given us, I'm going to ask you to pray with me that God would really allow this to sink into our heart. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I praise you for every single soul who's in the auditorium and everyone who's part of this service virtually. We recognize it's not by accident, but it's by deliberate choice that we're here, that we're part of this. And now we look to your word and we ask that you would speak to us, but we recognize in human ability, we lack the capacity to really understand what's going on. And that's why it requires the power of your Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray right now earnestly 
that your spirit would be unleashed in such a way that we would not mistake at all what you're communicating, but clearly understand what you have said and what you want us to do in response to it. So teach us now, Father. We praise you for this, and we pray asking this in earnestness, and we ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. So last week, we saw Noah leave the ark, and he went out and built an altar. And you might remember that is carnage, devastation every place, but there's a new beginning. So he builds his altar, he's praising God, he's worshiping God because of what he's gone through. But they go now with this mandate, God says, to be fruitful and multiply. And actually, God puts a blessing on them and tells them he wants them to prosper. And alongside this new beginning, they receive a promise from God himself, a covenant, a covenant commitment from God that the earth will not be annihilated again by a flood. There will be regional disasters. We live on a fallen planet. We've seen regional disasters all the time. But God says, not that again. Not a global trauma again until the end of time. At the end of time, there will be damage. And to guarantee that this will not happen, God gives them a visible physical sign reminding all of creation, not just humans, but reminding even the animals that as time unfolds on this planet, spring, summer, harvest, God's going to withhold His future wrath for a season. That's where we left off at last week in Genesis chapter 8. Let me remind you of that. Look with me on the screen again. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease, meaning earth is not always going to remain, but while it does, as long as it does, it's not going to all come crashing down. So if you're worried about global inflation taking you out, set your fears aside. If you're worried about bad politics taking you out, set your fears aside. If you're worried about climate change taking you out, set your fears aside. God says, take confidence, I will keep my word, and to validate it, every time that there is a storm, the humans only have to look up, and they're going to see a polychromatic display across the sky, a spectacle to remind you that God is in control. So for Noah, the flood's over. He's on the other side of the trauma. He's out of the ark. He's entering this new world, and all around him is the aftermath. There's death. There's catastrophe, incredible devastation. But new life also surrounds them, new opportunities, new beginnings. Now, because Noah knows that God always keeps his word... Let's just do a little system check here in the auditorium right now. If you're a person who believes that God keeps His Word, would you say amen? Amen. Okay, amen. We're in the the same page. So Noah knows that. Noah knows what you know. He believes that God keeps His Word. And because Noah knows that God keeps His side of the arrangement, that He always keeps His Word, therefore, this promise that God is giving, it's going to set the heart of His creatures at rest. And that frames chapter 9, verse 9, where we're stepping in this morning. Look with me at this. Now, behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, 
and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. Just a little segue for a second. That passage alone right there, that passage validates that what took place was actually global. Because obviously there have been regional floods. We've seen them in our lifetime. But here God is saying, I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to take out the planet in the way that I did then. Ultimately, he will move against the whole earth. Ultimately, his wrath will be unleashed. But that's in the future, but not in the same way. Now, let me touch on what we looked at last week with Peter. Peter, I just want to remind you what he wrote, 2 Peter 3.6. The world that then was, being overflowed with water, it perished. He's saying, that world, those people that lived during that time, all the animals that lived during that time, they're gone. There was a global reset that took place. But then he goes on to verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment. And the reason that Peter uses the flood event for this contrasting example is because life on this planet was once destroyed, and it's going to be again, just as the present, pleasant, present planet will be dealt with in the future judgment. But you've heard me say, if you've been here any length of time, that could be tomorrow or it could be 500 years down the road. And depending on which age range you fall in, you tend to think it's closer than further away. If, if you're over 50, most people think it's got to be tomorrow. If you're between 20 and 40, you tend to think, eh, 500 years. I just know because I remember when I was that age, I really wanted it to be 500 years. We don't know when. We just know that it's going to happen, but I digress. The language of verse 9 in chapter 9 is very explicit and very precise. This is a universal promise that God's making, and it's called a covenant. And in the Old Testament, God is always celebrated as this covenant-keeping God. So look at the language that's being used here. Genesis 9, I myself do establish my covenant with you. Uh, with you means to all humanity. You weren't there, but he's making the commitment to you because Noah and his wife, they're the progenitors. I told you last week, all of us have Noah's DNA in us. Those eight people that survived, we've all come from them. So when God speaks to them, he's speaking to all of humanity. And with all of humanity, he's communicating his commitment to this entire human race, which is really important because there's no other place in the entire Old Testament where God makes a commitment to all of humanity. There's other covenants in Scripture. There's the Mosaic covenant, there's the Davidic covenant, there's the priestly covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant. But those are made to a specific group of people. Here in the Old Testament, this one applies to every single person. And what it's doing is it's setting a biblical pattern for common grace. I don't know if you knew this, that you're living in an age of God's common grace, when He holds back His wrath on this planet, and His common grace is extended to everyone, whether they're a believer or not, God has put this in place. So let me expand on the imagery of a covenant, because very few people today understand what a covenant is. 
It virtually the language of it is non-existent in our culture. So our culture hangs on to just remnants of what a covenant is, but mostly because we have just visual images. The most well-known concept of a covenant today is found in a marriage, in a wedding ceremony. That's where we're most able to hear someone repeat vows to each other. What used to be known as a covenant. And so you typically, if you've been to a wedding and seen some vows exchange, you probably are familiar with some of the old descriptors that I'm using. I'm guessing that I've probably been to way more weddings than anybody in this auditorium. So I'm going to tell you that here's language that you might hear in some settings, especially old English language. When someone says, I want to do a really old wedding vow, and a groom says to his bride, here too I offer thee my pledge. You wouldn't hear that one so often today, would you? It's not a modern vow. But what that groom is saying to his bride, and the bride would repeat it back to the groom is, I'm making a covenant with you. Today we watch in a wedding ceremony where a bride and groom will exchange vows with each other and they're entering into a covenant. So modern weddings still talk about a covenant, but they're calling it a vow. Well, not that long ago, and certainly in the ancient world, a covenant commitment was binding, absolutely binding for life. And so when an individual made a covenant, everything about that person's character, everything about who they were, hinged on whether or not they would keep their covenant. And so if you've been to a wedding where somebody leading the wedding ceremony, pastor might say to them as the bride and groom come forward, we're not entering into this lightly or unadvisedly because the vow is so powerful in the ancient and even in the modern world. Not that long ago, all of society understood that society was built on people keeping their word, making their covenant. And as an example of that, if you broke your vow not that many years ago, there were places called debtor's prison. If you broke a financial commitment, you could find yourself literally in prison for breaking your vow to teach you a lesson and you would serve time until somebody saw it decent to release you. So in ancient times, Covenants were the foundation of a society because they understood the magnitude of a covenant. And when they're making a contractual promise with someone, you're binding yourself to them in an oath. And the most significant covenant, that was a blood covenant. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, most times when you find covenantal language, it's typically bilateral meaning it's agreed upon by two parties. Here's an example for you. When a king ascended a throne, a king who was new to his realm would make a covenant with the people he would rule over, and the king would establish and say, here's what I'm going to do, and in turn, the people would identify what they're going to do. That's a bilateral agreement in which you have two parties agreeing. But the covenant that God's making here, it's unilateral. It's not bilateral, meaning it's a covenant made only by one entity. So look at the language really closely again, the language in Genesis 9. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Bilateral covenant that's made between two entities, that's not this. 
The covenant that God's making here in Genesis 9 is solo. It's on his part. And he's doing it without any negotiation whatsoever. So what's really clear in this passage is God's not saying, if you do this, I'll do this. And if you don't do this, I won't do that. That's not the language here. It is only, if you look at verse 9, verse 11, verse 12, verse 17, I myself, I establish my covenant, the sign of the covenant I am making, the covenant which I have established. And one more detail before we get out of the covenants. It's also an unconditional covenant. It's not just unilateral. It's unconditional. So he's saying, I myself do establish. I establish. I have established. So in your notes this morning, there's a couple Hebrew words, and the first one that pops up is this word kum. And, and kum is kind of like a construction term. It's talking about setting something so firm, having such a firm foundation, it can't be shaken. So for the Hebrew people, when they heard this word, to make something kum was to make it stand solid. It's in other words like saying, I'm setting this in concrete. Now, if you know the God of the Bible, you know that if God makes something to stand solid, it will not be shaken. No action on the part of the humans can validate it or invalidate it. And church, I got to tell you, that's absolutely astonishing that God would make that commitment because he knows you. He knows me. He knows the humans. And he knows the humans will very, very quickly act in rebellion. When we do get to the Tower of Babel next week, you're going to see that quickly the earth moves away from God in a very short period of time. And violence begins to fill the earth. So it's astonishing that God would make this commitment. And nothing that we could do could invalidate it. Even though the earth is once again going to be filled with violence, God says, I'm not going to take action in the same way. Not that we don't deserve it. Not that it shouldn't happen. He just says, I won't do it. And that's his covenantal promise. That even though we deserve wrath, he's going to be merciful to all of humanity and he's going to allow the humans for thousands of years to continue in their rebellion. That is the patience and the forbearance of God. And today, that's why I say, you and I, we're living in an age of common grace. Common grace of God. So check this. Just let me summarize this for you. God has just made a unilateral, unconditional covenant which is the best kind from the standpoint of the person who's the recipient, because God always keeps his word. So God makes his commitment. The covenant of God is made with Noah, and it's still in effect today. You're the recipient of it. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, even though we tend to forget about it, God's word never changes, and his covenant is still in effect so what God does next is he explains the sign of the covenant, the one that he's entering into with us. Now, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he gave him a sign, and the sign would be circumcision. When he made a covenant with Moses, he gave him a sign, and the sign would be the celebration of Shabbat, Sabbath. But not all covenants in the Bible actually have signs with them or a token. 
But God knows we are visual creatures. I'm a visual creature. I know you are. We need to see things to reinforce, and God knows that we're visual creatures. And so for the sake of the sheer magnitude of what he's committing to, God puts something in place that will put peace in your heart, even if you've gone through trauma, when you see it. Verse 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations, meaning in perpetuity. All generations are going to see this. You're the generations succeeding Noah. And I'm making it with even those people, Noah, who are not born yet. And verse 13, here it comes. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. So here's the sign, God says. The absolute assurance that you can be at peace, that my guarantee will stand, I'm going to set my bow in the cloud. Uh, let me just rabbit trail with you for just a moment to illustrate this. If you were to look up right now the rainiest city on the earth, you would find it's in northern India. And they get like 410 inches of rain a year. Can you imagine? What, what would it be like if that was translated to snow? Like, wow! Or Seattle. Seattle, back here in the States. They have like 159 days of rain a year. Or Portland, Portland's even rainier than Seattle. They got like 165 days of rain every year. You could go to the Philippines or you could go to Skagway outside British Columbia. You would find some really incredibly rainy cities and it seems like constant rain. So if you ask people who lived in those regions, what's it like? Don't you get sick and tired of it? They would typically respond to you, well, you know, we've kind of adjusted. We learned to live with it. But if you could have a conversation with Noah, and you could say to Noah, what do you think of rain, Noah? I'm pretty sure you'd get a long-distance stare. And he probably wouldn't look at you. He'd look through you. Very similar to, like, when I was 14 years old, my cousin came back from Vietnam, and he had served in the Green Beret. And we had lost track of him for, like, weeks on end because when he was sent into jungle missions, no one would hear from him. And we didn't know what became of him, and then he reconnected, and then he was reassigned back to the States. And in just a stupid conversation when I was sitting with him when I was 14, I asked him, did you see much action when you were over there? I was just a 14-year-old. And from my cousin, I got this distant stare. And he looked through me. It's, it's like asking a World War II veteran who stormed the beaches of Normandy, what was it like? In Noah's case, he could respond to you by looking right through you, say, I, I saw it once. And it came like a torrent from heaven. And the earth beneath our feet, it began to shake and crack open. And the fountains, they busted up with water around us. And the temperature changed rapidly, and the sky became incredibly black. 
and there was carnage and there was destruction everywhere. And everyone died. See, for Noah, that moment was the defining moment of his life. Not the hundred yet plus years it took to build the ark. The trauma for him, the storm of his life was what he had just gone through. Thus the distant stare. So in Noah's experience, in his very present mind, the storms elicit a traumatic memory. So you can imagine the emotion attached to it the next time the storm clouds roll in and the first raindrop hits him on the head. Where's his mind going to go? What's the first thing that he's going to think of? So God gives a visual image, and in your notes again this morning is one more Hebrew word, and it's this word, kaset. And kaset is talking about something that's a very literal image. Look at the definition, a bow for shooting or the iris. So it's talking about an archer who's holding a bow in his hand and pulls back the arrow, or the arc of the bow, like the iris it's describing there. So God doesn't say, I put my rainbow in the sky. We've added that. That's not the biblical word here. The word is, I put my bow, my cachette in the sky. It's talking about a battle bow. See, in the ancient world, when they thought of a bow, it was a weapon of death. It was a weapon of destruction. You either went out hunting to kill an animal for your survival, or you went out hunting humans because you were a warrior and you were about to go into battle. That's the word that's used here. So in the ancient Eastern cultures, when you look at artwork of kings from days gone by, many times they show the king with a bow brandishing arrows in his hand because that's a conquering king, a warrior king. Arnold Fruchtenbaum is a, a person who I respect greatly, and I wanted you to see his quote. But let me show you a couple of verses first that emphasize God as a warrior. Look first at Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a warrior. Or this next one, Zechariah 9, 14. His arrows are lightning. So here's the quote that's in your notes this morning that comes from Dr. Fruchtenbaum. The Hebrew word for, the bow, for bow is kashet. The same word used of a battle bow, it is as if God hung up his battle bow on the cloud as a sign of peace in place of being a sign of war. So in the flood event, the warrior God bent his bow and delivered his arrows of lightning against the earth in wrath. But from this point forward, God hangs up his bow on the wall, if you will in the sky, in the clouds, so everyone can see it and know that God has made a covenant with them. So he says this in Genesis 9, it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. That's God's way of saying, I'm not going to take out my creation in the same way that I did before. I'm hanging up my bow. So, Perhaps even more specific to the point that really resonates with me as I see this imagery coming out is what the bow actually means to the writers of Revelation and the writers of Ezekiel when they write about heaven and God's bow. 
First of all, recognizing the rainbow is his sign. It belongs to him. Look with me on screen at Revelation 4.2. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. Now, the language doesn't say this, but I'm thinking when John is looking at this and writing Revelation, he's going like, awesome. This is so cool. And the verse actually goes on to say that the rainbow is emerald in its appearance. And it's not indicating that God is a Spartan fan and green is his predominant thing. But it's just saying the dominant color around the throne was this green bow made up of the spectrum of light of all these colors. And John's picturing this for us. And here's what registers with me. He says there's a complete circle in heaven. It's, it's not stopped by the horizon. It encircles the throne. And God takes something that belongs to him from his own throne, the dwelling place of the Most High, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells, and he shares it with us so that we can be reminded each time we see it that we're at peace with God we're reminded that even though there's a storm, he's in control. Perhaps for you, every time moving forward, whenever you see a rainbow, you might stop and thank God that he's the God who's in control and he's the God who rules and reigns and that he will bring about his purposes. Even though our culture doesn't get it and doesn't understand, you know why he gave it, what it truly stands for. It's actually about humbling yourself before an awesome promise-keeping God. So verse 14 finishes it out for us. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall water become a flood to destroy all the earth. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Last verse, 17. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. So in chapter 9, God reveals what he's going to do, and he uses very careful expression of language here. If you're one of the attorneys that attend here, you understand he's being very deliberate in the structure of the language. Really deliberate to make sure that we, the recipient, understand what he's doing. So he initiates and he completes the covenant by putting his signature on the contract by the sign. So he's signing his name to it so that every time you see the rainbow, you're reminded of the victory of grace over judgment. Grace triumphs over judgment. That's what God's telling them. I've done this in the past. I brought my wrath against the earth. There's a brand new beginning. I'm going to exercise mercy and grace towards people, and I'm going to hold back on my wrath, and every generation will be reminded that that's exactly what I'm doing. A question for you. 
considering the status of things on our planet right now, what does our planet deserve? You're whispering judgment, but I know that's what you're thinking. All right. you, you may be tempted, it doesn't matter what age you are, what generation you fit into, to say, eh, it can't keep going on this way. Something's not right. So considering the status of our planet right now, what does our planet deserve right now? Judgment. What does it get? Grace. How amazing is the grace of God. Everyone on our planet can see an element of God's grace, an element of His own throne, and be reminded He is in control of all things, even when storms move into your life and threaten to take out everything that you have ever known. God says you can be at peace because even though you're going through the storm, I'm here to remind you, I'm in control. I'm sovereign. Things will happen according to my plan. So our great God, the warrior, has hung up his bow because the end of all things is not yet. In the future, he will pick up his bow and he will deal with all the trouble that you're thinking of that's going on on the planet. But for now, be at peace that he is a covenant-keeping God. And I'll repeat what I just said. Even though a storm is threatened to take out everything that you know, God tells you you can be at complete peace because He is a covenant-keeping God, and that is especially important to remind yourself of if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning. Because Jesus, the Son of God, made the ultimate covenant with you the night before His crucifixion. I don't know if you've ever noticed the language before. Let me remind you by just showing you to look up on the screen. I'm, of course, I'm speaking of the new covenant. It says this in Luke 22:20. 20. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, I told you the greatest covenant of all is the blood covenant. The most significant thing about that covenant, it never goes away. It's not time limited. The rainbow will go back to heaven around God's throne one day, but people on earth won't see it because this earth is going to burn according to what Peter has written. But this covenant that God has made with us through Jesus, it never goes away and it's still in effect. Let me amplify for you what's in effect as a result of that covenant. Matthew 26, 27, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You have sin, God forgives your sin. How do you know that? Because He made a promise that if you will believe, His blood would be poured out for you and He makes a covenant for you and that covenant cannot change, that you are redeemed for eternity because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So the new covenant that God makes with us is based in blood, a blood faith covenant to take away your sin. But what's remarkable about this covenant is it's not unilateral. It's bilateral, meaning you have to do something. God offers it, 
but you have to actually receive it. You have a role to play. You have to actually ask and receive, and the evidence that you actually have your name on the contract with God is seen in the life choices that you make because your life will be radically different after you make that covenant with God. You're walking in obedience. God says, that's a person I'm in a covenant contract with. However, that's stepping into next week's material, and I don't want to do that. So, yep, you're going to get out early this morning. I'm going to pray with you right now that you take this stuff, carry it into the study of Babel for next week, but remember how this might affect your life this week. Let's pray together. Father, so many things swimming around in our head right now about the commitments and the promises that you make. Thank you that you have not brought wrath back to this planet in the way that you intend to in the last days that your grace is available to everyone, both common grace and the grace that is given to those who believe in Jesus. I pray, Father, for these individuals in this auditorium right now as they step into the week that they're about to take on, that they will represent a sweet, fragrant aroma to people who are looking to understand the mercy of God and need to know the grace of God. Make us a tool for you, Father. Use us in a way, in a world that's very confused about what's going on. Use us to bring glory to the name of Jesus who poured out his blood for us. We ask that you would do that in the matchless name of our soon coming King and all God's people said, amen. Hope you have a great week before I let you go. If we haven't met yet, I'm going to be down here in front. I'd love to connect with you. If you're new to the church, come on, introduce yourself. Otherwise, have a great week, New Hope.